What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smalley Talk Podcast. This is your host, Josh Rinko, and joining me remotely is the one and only Christian Vaughn. What's up, Christian? Actually, I'm sorry, Dr. Vaughn. Dr. (laughs) Vaughn. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is how Chris has requested to be referred to from uh, here on. that's so, Doctor, absolutely true. Yep. <laughs> and not we actually exa- <laughs> not at all making this up. <laughs> uh, so we actually have a second doctor on the line. <laughs> First of all, let's. I didn't. Ne- I never told Josh to call me a doctor. I have never called False. myself a doctor. I'm not going to steal that valor right now. Uh, <laughs> so let's just put that out there right now. On the line is a very exciting guest. You may you may know him from the world famous Drew Gregory Hooked on Wild Waters podcast, Dr. Steve Sammons. Hey Steve, how you doing? I am doing well. It's nice to know the PhDs have the other guy outnumbered for a change. <laughs> now, I'm not a PhD. I, I'm I'm a, I'm a J- Josh has completely made all this up. I'm a J I'm a JD. Not a PhD. I would never call myself doctor. He's, he's <laughs> completely embarrassed me. Damn you, Josh. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we heard we heard Dr. Sammons on Drew Gregory's podcast. Uh, Drew Gregory was on our show last week, and he was kind of gave us like a little teaser about, you know, doing this episode with this brilliant PhD from Auburn University. He said, you guys are going to love this series. It's going to be the best thing I have ever recorded, you know, so whatever. So I tuned in and listened and I was kind of blown away. It was just a great episode, in-depth review of like nine different subspecies of, of black bass. Um, and Very Dr. Cool. Sammons, yeah, it was like four hours long and I listened like to every word of it. So we had to have uh, Dr. Sammons on to kind of talk specifically about smallmouth. So thank you very much for being on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Well, why don't you kind of give the the readers, other than, uh, you know, us introducing you as someone who's been on Drew Gregory's podcast, why don't you kind of, <laughs> tell, why don't you kind of tell them who you are, uh, what you do, and why you're talking to us? Sure. Um, so, yes, uh, my name is Steve Sammons. Um, I am a fish scientist. Uh I uh, grew up in New Jersey, um, started fishing at a rather young age, six or seven or so, Um, and uh, pretty much uh, was a small boat angler for most of my life. Uh, By default, um, South Jersey, where I grew up, is is, uh, full of small lakes, uh, little creeks, a few uh, navigable water uh, rivers, but mostly it's it's the other things. Uh, they have little access for boats. Uh, a lot of lakes I fished didn't even have a boat ramp, just a place to park along the side of the road. And so uh, they tended to be accessed mostly by canoes. So that's how I grew up fishing. Uh, I kind of went uh, into natural resources uh, out of high school 
Um, I had never heard of fisheries, so I was looking into forestry programs, um, which sounded cool. And uh, uh, fun fact, the uh, Natural Resource School in New Jersey is located in Rutgers, um, the state school. And Rutgers is up in the concrete jungle around New York City. So from uh, a guy from South Jersey was like, yeah, it doesn't sound like where I want to go live for four years. Um, I was 30 miles from Philadelphia, and that was kind of like minimum safe distance. And um, besides, we had a river between us and them, so you could only go across by bridge, so easily defended. That's right. But uh, so I looked into uh, other programs. I looked into some, some, some in New York. I looked into Penn State, um, and uh, their tuition was insanely high for out-of-state students, and uh uh, even way back into the in the Pleistocene when I went to school, uh, <laughs> they're even worse now. Um, and uh, I happened to look into a little program down at Virginia Tech University in Virginia, and it turns out their out-of-state tuition was exactly half of what the other school was. Oh, and I was wow. like, sold, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, we basically paid for it ourselves. My folks was paid the bill, thankfully, and uh, I wasn't going to stick them with, you know, forty or fifty thousand dollars of school debt if I didn't have to. Yeah, you um, mean one you mean basically one semester worth of uh college tuition and room and board and all right. that stuff now. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's insane how things have changed. Um yeah, sure. you know, but uh so I went down there and I was there for about a year and a half. And I realized that there was this thing called fisheries. And I was like, ooh, that sounds much better than trees. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we were actually, down, the way they were organized down there, they're in the same school, School of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries. So I started rubbing shoulders with these people who were actually fisheries people. And I was like, you mean you can do that? And so, <laughs> so I made the switch uh, at the beginning of my sophomore or junior year, excuse me, and never looked back. <laughs> Yeah. I finished there with a with a BS in fisheries. I went out to South Dakota State University for my master's. Uh, came back to the southeast, worked five years in Tennessee at Tennessee Tech University as a research associate. Then I moved down here to Auburn, got my PhD, and never left. Um, the money just kept coming in, uh, and so I just kind of stayed here, um, and uh, it's worked out. Um, I am kind of a traditional fish management, sport fish kind of researcher. Uh, I work a lot with state agencies to help them solve their issues and their problems. I kind of started in lakes and reservoirs. That's kind of where I thought my career focus was going to be. Um, but then after I got out of my PhD, um, literally a Georgia River sunfish project dro dropped in my lap. It was pretty novel. No one had ever worked on these fish before. I was like, that's cool. And then from there, uh, the shoal bass thing happened. And I have never looked back and hardly have not worked on a reservoir since I finished my PhD in 2004. <laughs> so oh, wow. I have all of a sudden become a river guy. Um, and, uh, it's been, it's been interesting because all my training was in reservoirs. Um, and, and I know them really well. And, uh, 
I feel like uh, a fake river scientist because that really wasn't my my focus. And so I've been spending all this time doing research and at the same time teaching myself about rivers. Um, but I'm reminded constantly and, and keep firmly in my mind anyway, that there are a lot of people out there who know more about the river ecosystem than I do because they at least did a degree on it or they've had classes on it or all that. So, uh, you know, it's been interesting though. It's been a really fun ride. Um, and uh, my focus in the last, oh boy, it's been almost 15 years now, has been these rare species of bass that are found in rivers down here. Of course, the shoal bass and now red-eyed bass. And I've worked on Alabama bass. And and heck, by the time I'm done, I may have finished my career of working on about eight or nine different species of bass, um, which is pretty rare. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and you, like you said, you're kind of in the Southeast, uh, like that region, Georgia, Alabama, um, you know, that, that type of yes. area. Now you guys have smallmouth in your, in your riverine systems, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the smallmouth bass, um, uh, yeah, let me, let me just start with, with where are smallmouth bass? Um, so smallmouth bass naturally occur in the Mississippi River Basin. Um, so they, they uh, um, are found basically from uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma area, up north through into the Dakotas, uh, through Minnesota, uh, and all the northern states down to New York, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, they're, in, they're native to that. They're in all the Great Lakes, of course. And uh, the uh, the parts of the Tennessee, or I'm sorry, the parts of the Mississippi River Basin in the east that that stretches their range quite a bit eastward is the Ohio River system and the Tennessee River system. And so in Alabama, our smallmouth bass are in the stream north part of the state in the Tennessee River system. The Tennessee River is one of those really really odd rivers if you ever. I had never realized that till I lived in Tennessee, but the Tennessee River literally makes a U. It starts, it starts in southwest Virginia, and it flows south. Uh, of course, it's not the Tennessee River up there. It's, it's three rivers, the Clinch, the Holston, and the, um, oh gosh, this French Broad come together to form the Tennessee River just south of Knoxville. But still, the basin flows southward through Knoxville, through the, through the Chattanooga, and then it just takes an a, a extreme right turn and flows west through northern Alabama to get to the corner where Mississippi comes in, and then it takes another hard right, and it goes north all the way through Tennessee again, west of Nashville, and then drump, dumps into the Ohio River at Paducah. That's wild. So I had yeah, no idea. I, I didn't realize that. Either. Yeah, it's a crazy river system. So, so that's why if you look at a range map of the of smallmouth bass, it looks like this weird amorphous amoeba, and part of it is because of that. So, so yeah, that's uh, wild. Um, well, the 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 Clinch and the Holston are both great trout rivers, of mm -hmm. course. And then right. the Tennessee, the Tennessee River is, uh, you know, that's you know impoundments on the Tennessee create some of the the biggest you know smallmouth lakes in the in the world so right. yeah pretty interesting that that river system kind of feeds everything in the south I, I did not realize that 
Right, right. So that is the southern extent of their range. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Alabama and Georgia have so many species of bass in it is just because of the way the drainage systems are there and the topography is really weird. Um, so uh, I'll tell you, it's really fascinating to look at it like on, on Google Earth or some, or Google Maps, really, with, with, with the satellite turned off so you can kind of see everything. But right through middle, the top of Alabama, there are rivers and streams that are separated by maybe 10 to 15 miles. And everything on the north side is flowing north into the Tennessee River. And everything on the south side of that line is flowing south into the Mobile River Basin. And they have totally different bass species. Totally. Huh. Not, the only thing that overlaps is largemouth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Everything else is different. To the south, you have red-eye bass, a variety of forms, and Alabama bass and largemouth bass. And to the north, you have largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and spotted bass. That'd be pretty fun to live around there, though. I was going to say, if you're, if you're going to be a black bass researcher, it seems yeah. like you were pretty smart about picking where you lived <laughs> and where you studied. Yes. You've got plenty of them around to study. Yes, you've got plenty down here. So... You know, I don't, the Tennessee River is four and a half hours for me, so I really don't get, I really don't go up there to fish for smallmouth very much. I fished for smallmouth in Alabama one time uh, a couple years ago. I accompanied my wife on a business trip to Huntsville, Alabama, and, and fished a small uh, river, a wadeable river that flows into, uh, I think it's Wheeler Reservoir, and caught some smallmouth for the first time in Alabama. Um, well, my parents still live in Tennessee. And so I go back near the university that I used to live in. So I go back there a couple times a year, of course. And if I'm there in the summer or the fall, I certainly go tramp around a couple streams and <laughs> catch my smallmouth for the year um, just sure. to keep my hand in the game. And, uh, <laughs> um, and about every five to six years, I take a group of folks up to Quetico Provincial Park and we get serious about smallmouth. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, and this year, this year, I don't, did you go to the Boundary Waters this year? Did you? No, we there? were actually supposed to go to Quetico, but obviously the, when the border closed and never reopened, that was the end of that. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping to redo right. that this year. So, yeah, I had a, a bunch of people that I know went. like this was the year that they were all planning on going on this big Quetico trip, like three different groups of friends. Right. And all three of them ended up having to go to the you know, to the American side, and they said yeah. it just wasn't even close to the same. You oh, know, it's not. No. Tons of people around, you know, it was just yeah. not even close to the same quality of a trip. No, so, if I lived closer, I'd go I'd go to either, honestly. I mean, I, when I was in South Dakota State, I was seven hours from there. I went three, four times a year, and I was always in the Boundary Water somewhere. But if I'm driving 1,800 miles, which is sure. what it is, we're going to where it's good, where it's really good, you know. <laughs> Zero mean, chances, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the lakes that we fish up there, the only fish size that you catch, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, the only fish size that you count are the ones over 20 inches because you couldn't possibly count the number of fish between 18 and 20. So <laughs> you ain't having that kind of fishing in the boundary waters that I've ever seen. You still have the numbers, but they're more like 14 to 16 inches. Yeah, it's not quite the same. <laughs> so, yeah. Steve, those uh, uh, those smallmouth up there in Quetico, mm -hmm. is is that 
part of the Mississippi River Basin, or is or were those like transplanted somehow? Great question. That so both. Um, okay. There is um, at the the eastern edge of some of that um, is in the Great Lakes in Lake Superior drainage. So those fish are native. Everything else has been moved. Um, and, you know, state agencies back 40, 50 years ago were in a regular, one of their regular jobs was creating new opportunities for anglers. That was one of their big things. And the way they did that back then was if fish A is not there and people like to fish for it, then we're going to move fish A to where they want to catch the fish. Um, and so that was just part of the way fish, fish agency work was done. And uh, so that's, that's how smallmouth bass got introduced to most of the Boundary Waters and Quetico Provincial Park was because of that. Um, largemouth bass are also up in that area, for the, and, they're, and they're also not native. Um, Interesting. They've done really yeah. well, obviously. That's what I was going to say. I've, I've always uh, wondered um, how they handle that like extreme cold up there if if you know at some point i'm sure along the there has to be a line of demarcation where that's too cold Correct. for them um it's kind of but, funny to think about like 40 years ago there were probably some like musky and lake trout and walleye anglers that were like these freaking smallmouth bass dude <laughs> we have got to get rid of these things they're gonna take over the lakes but they probably were oh yeah yeah i mean you guys uh, have fished up in the northern parts of the world. I mean, I don't know how in, you're from Indiana, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know what Indiana's like, but I, I would imagine Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota was this way when I lived there. Those people don't care about bass. Um, and, For sure. yeah. you know, I know it's better now than it was 30 years ago when I lived out that way. You know, and there are people now that actually fish for them. But I mean, holy crap, man, when I was in South Dakota, there was, I mean, don't get me wrong, there wasn't a lot of opportunities in eastern South Dakota, honestly, um, uh, for bass. Most of those lakes don't even have them. Um, but there was, there was one largemouth lake just about 35, 40 minutes north of campus um, that I would fish every once in a while when, when the walleye weren't biting or the pike were not there or whatever. And, Man, I mean, the fishing was insane. I mean, not size, but I mean, just, I mean, 20, 30, 40 fish in an afternoon. I mean, just yeah. bite stupid stuff. And I'm like, what's up with this? You know, I mean, how, how, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, and because it's a public lake, it's only about 300 acres. There's people fishing there all the time, but no one was doing anything like what I was doing. And uh, it all came so clear one afternoon. I was fishing in this weedy little bay and catching just creaming largemouths on a uh, buzz bait, just absolutely hammering them. I mean, every cast catching a fish, it was nuts. And this guy was back trolling along the weed line. I don't know what he was fishing with. And he sat there and watched me catch like five or eight fish in 10 minutes on this buzz bait, you know, chugging across the water, fish crushing it and all that. <laughs> and he's finally says, what are you doing? What are you using over there? Is that some kind of a jig? 
And I was like, <laughs> yes. holy mackerel, no wonder these fish don't, they've never seen this lure in their life. No wonder the fishing here is insane. Yeah. This guy doesn't even know, he thinks his topwater plug's a jig? Uh, I, I can't uh, tell you how many times Josh and I have been on a trip in the Northwoods and we'll be like, you know, we'll go paddling by somebody or rowing some, you know, by somebody and they'll be like, what are you guys fishing for? Like a bass? Like, they just look at you like, why? Why are you doing that? <laughs> there are wall, you know, there are walleye in this river, right? Like, you know, they're in there. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So while we're, while we're on the Northwoods thing, one of the questions that we put on your outline was, um, you know, if there's been any sort of research done or any sort of, um, you know, thought put into the prospect of, you know, a Northern strain smallmouth versus a, you know, a Southern strain or a, you know, the, there's the Wichita, the Neosho, and then, um, you know, if there's been any, any, anybody doing research or looking at that, because we've noticed huge differences in the way the fish fight, the way they look, the way they feel, you know, they're obviously their metabolism is different, which I think we'll talk about a little later, but any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, as far as I know, as of right now, genetically, um, the northern smallmouth bass is it, it, to, to separate them from the two strains in the southwest part of their range. Um, really, is just about everything else. Um, there's no real discernible genetic differences from the ones that say in Alabama versus the ones in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Um, now, that's not to say that there's not genetic differences on some level, but as far as going to the subspecies or species level, most of them are relatively distinct compared to how different the ones in Oklahoma and Arkansas are from the rest of them. Like you mentioned, the Yoshos and the Washitals. Um, okay. So, so I was pronouncing that very white. <laughs> well, you know what? I was the, pronouncing that as white as a person can pronounce that word. Perfect. <laughs> I have learned a long time ago when it comes to the Washita, you don't ever want to see it written down. Ever. You just have <laughs> yeah. to know what it sounds like and never look at it because it doesn't look one bit like it's written. One I'm going to say it would have been a huge risk for me to pronounce that right. Like I would have had to take <laughs> some pretty big linguistic risks. What did you call the game, Chris? Say. What did you say? It was again? I'm not, I don't, I can't even <laughs> think in terms of wrong, dude. Oh, I, I just do it right. So in, what, can you tell us what the difference is like, but can you kind of describe the subspecies and kind of describe any differences between them? Um, I can try. Okay. Uh, so, um, another person that, that I will say, if you want to do a podcast down the road on, more of that kind of thing like exactly yeah. what they're all about one of my recent colleagues that just came here from oklahoma is uh shannon brewer she has done a lot of work on them while oh, she okay. was in oklahoma did her phd on them when she was at missouri so well, let's, she let's, really we'll save knows. that question yeah we'll save that question for her then why don't you can we can we move on to the metabolism thing and kind of talk about sure yeah if Absolutely. i mean i think yeah let's uh, so that's another thing that we've noticed. If you've never fished in the North woods, the fish are typically just a different shape. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, we've also, you know, we've read papers and we've talked to people who've done tagging programs and things like that, who say that, you know, the, the bass in the North live a lot longer, right. um, which might explain some of the, you know, 
the body differences and things like that. Can you shed some light on that uh, for us, for our listeners? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so fish, fish are uh, what we call ectotherms, um, which is the twenty-dollar word for cold-blooded, and basically that means that their body temperature and their metabolism is tied to water temperature. Um, that's unlike, of course, all mammals who, you know, we are endotherms, we are warm-blooded, and uh, our body regulates a constant temperature. They don't have that. And so what that means is that the, the farther north you go, no matter what fish we're talking about, the farther north you go, growth becomes slower and, and longevity also seems to increase. Um, and it's probably tied to growth. Um, and so specifically smallmouth bass, um, and I, I have actually done some work. I've aged fish from Quetico Provincial Park um, because you can take the boy out of the lab, but you can't take the lab out of the boy. <laughs> nice. so, you know, we, where, we, where we fish up there, I should mention, uh, that's not a great walleye lake particularly. Um, there's one, a smaller lake that can be there, and sometimes they're not. So we eat bass. I mean, I don't care. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, my old advisor used to say, you know, all fish die. Uh, someone's got to kill them. It might as well be me. <laughs> um, you know, and he's, he's one of the guys that I, he's one of the guys that always went up there with me. Um, and, uh, uh, so, so we keep bass to eat. Um, you know, it's, we go up there one week every six years. So I don't think we're really damaging the resource much. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to justify it to us. They're, they're not even, those aren't even American citizen bass. Well, right. right, right. Foreigners. Yeah. Dude, those um, are, for, those are foreign bass. And also. They're not, they're invasives. So yeah, you got to get rid not of them. even native up there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I have pulled, I have pulled uh, otoliths out of their head. Otoliths are what we use to uh, age the fish. They're little ear bones that uh, basically tell a fish when they're upright. We have them too in our inner ear mechanism uh, that gives us balance. Um, and all fish um bony structures generally lay down a ring for every age that they are that you can look at under a microscope. Otoliths just happen to be a very easy to remove bony structure. Um, so, so I've aged them up, up there. Uh, I've also done some work with the, my aforementioned old advisor up in the Hudson River in New York, which is really up near the northern edge of their range. So we've aged fish up there and I can tell you that I have personally aged smallmouth bass from both places that are as old as 18 or 19 years old. Um, wow. So these fish get really old up there and they grow very slowly. Uh, when you get down to the Tennessee River, these guys have about the same longevity as all the other bass seem to do down here, which is like 10 or 12 years old. Um, so they're, they're basically growing or living about twice as long up in the northern part of their range as they do in the southern part of their range. And there's probably a north to south gradient where longevity slowly increases the farther north you go. Sure. Um, now, when, when we were talking, you know, you're talking about growth rate, like they do tend to kind of, you know, get heavier up there or whatever. What, what's, what's the causal link between a slower metabolism 
or a colder environment and longevity. Do you, mm-hmm. do we have a clear understanding of that? <clears throat> it like it kind of comes back to energetics in a way. Um, there, there, there's a, uh, um, a theory that you could kind of summarize in the live fast, die young kind of thing. Um, okay. that, uh, they, the fish down here. Uh, so, so I guess when you think about growth, um, there's several determinants of growth. Um, you have, uh, a genetic component, um, individual fish, fish, fish all have a, an individual component of growth. I mean, well, when we throw out their growth rates or longevity rates or whatever, we're, we're, we often speak in terms of averages. But the truth is, is that individual fish have individual growth rates just like people do um, to some degree or any other animal. Um, some fish are fast growers and some fish are slow growers. It's just the way it is. Um, so there is a genetic component there that, that operates at the individual level. It also probably operates at the at the population level to some degree, um, but I think it's more at an individual level. I think every population has has fish that grow fast, and every population has fish that grow slow, and, and fish that grow close to the average. Um, and uh, that is also mediated by latitude. Um, and and the reason why it's mediated by latitude. Um, basically the farther north you go, the slower growth gets, um, is goes back to water temperature. Um, and, and so, uh, because the fish, fish growth is tied to temperature, um, because their metabolism is tied to temperature. So, uh, as you start at cold temperatures, like where we would be right now up there, their metabolism is very slow and their growth is probably about zip right now. And then as water temperatures warm, they start feeding more and they start growing. Um, and so that continues, that relationship continues. Now there is a, a, a point where growth starts leveling out as temperature increases and even can sometimes cease altogether and that is because of the metabolic demands that are put upon them as temperature continues to increase and and that's different for every fish species except that the temperature at which which that occurs is different for every fish species but the relationship is exactly the same so there's a there's a a uh optimal temperature if you will i think for smallmouth bass that optimal temperature is somewhere around like 73, 75 degrees, something like that. Largemouth bass, it's closer to like 80, um, something like that. So as you approach that temperature, um, you're in the sweet spot when you're when it's warm when the water temperature is warm enough that you're actively feeding and actively growing up to that optimum there, you're in the sweet spot where you are just putting on putting on the calories. Um, and then once you get above that maximum or that, that optimum, excuse me, the maximum is you die. But when you get above that optimum, you start to have the metabolic demand start to become so great that you is difficult or as it keeps, keeps getting 
warmer, impossible to eat enough to keep growing. And so fish growth will slow down and sometimes even stop until the temperature starts cooling off again. And then you have another sweet spot going sliding down towards river winter. You have another sweet spot where you can really pack on the calories. Mm -hmm. um, and so obviously the shorter your growing season is, the shorter time you have to really put on the weight. And so I think what happens up in, we'll just keep using Quetico as a, as a, I mean, that is the Northern extent of their range essentially. Sure. Um, um, so they have the shortest window of, mo of most of the smallmouth bass in the country, other than Maine and maybe New Hampshire, places like that. Um, you know, they have like a, maybe a five month growth window at best um by the time it starts warming up in june to where it starts cooling down in october um and uh they have they also have uh spawning to do and spawning is a huge energetic cost to them and most fish growth just slows down to almost nothing during the spawning season for that same reason they're expending a lot of energy um and uh and and all that so they have an even shorter window if you think of it like that. Now you come down to Alabama and what you have here is kind of like the summertime can be so warm that they're not growing very much. Um, but the rest of the year is on. They probably grow right through the winter. And, wow. and so their growth rate is a heck of a lot faster down here. And I actually worked up some, some, uh, data that I had on hand just to give you an idea of how much faster we're talking about. Um, so on average, the fish, the smallmouth bass from the Hudson River in New York, which by the way, when I say the Hudson River, I mean up above Albany, up closer to Quebec, yeah. <laughs> way up there, cold, not, not cold, New York cold. City. We're not talking New York City here. Right, um, right. It takes them on average about 10 years to reach 16 inches in that river. Down here in a reservoir I worked on in Tennessee, that same size, 16 inches, it takes them about five years. Wow. In the Tennessee River, where they're really growing like gangbusters, it probably takes them about four years to reach 16 inches. And so that has implications for how many growth. The growth rate is one of the things that, that influences how many big fish you have um, because fish die. Um, fish die every year, whether we harvest one or not. Um, there's, there's, there's a natural mortality component to all this. And uh, our natural mortality is usually inversely related to growth um, for all fish. So down here, our, our bass probably have about a 20% natural mortality rate, some, somewhere in that range. That's typical for most species of black bass in the south. And up there in Quetico, it's probably more like five to eight percent. Um, so that increased metabolic demand and increased activity or something increases your built your your vulnerability to natural causes of death. Um, hey, hey, yes, Steve, sir. On, on the uh, as you were talking about that, I was curious if you have you guys looked at the life expect expectancy of riverine versus lake smallmouth does that or fish in general does that affect their their uh length that's a great question line? um 
No, I, I, I'm sure. So whether has anyone actually like examined that, I'm not sure. Um, the data certainly would exist to look at that on some level um, because people age fish from all over the place and all you really need to do to examine mortality is a decent data set of aged fish. Um, so that would be interesting to look at. I mean, of course, it would have to be in the same region. Um, you know, right. Virginia, Virginia would be a well-placed to look at that because they have significant reservoir fisheries and significant river fisheries right there in the same state. Uh, Minnesota would have some opportunities to do that. They've got the Mississippi, if nothing else, and some smaller rivers have them. And of course, there's plenty of lakes. Um, but I don't know anyone who's actually looked at that specifically. Um, well, you know, that's like how old the fish can get, like ultimate longevity. Uh, you know, I aged fish up to age 18 i think is what it was in quetico 17 or 18 of course we didn't kill the biggest ones uh so that that uh and in the hudson river we did get one 20 year old wow so so they do they, they you know they the maximum age that they can reach is probably pretty similar because i think that's more mediated by latitude but the rate at which they die getting to that point is probably somewhat higher in rivers than it would be in lakes just because rivers are a lot more um volatile. Yeah. yeah a lot more volatile than yeah. Yeah. lakes. um you know i feel like a lake a lake smallmouth is a lot safer in 30 feet of water in the middle of a reservoir than in two foot of water next to a place where a river otter lives and people are paddling over you all the time and there's floods and you know right. all of that kind of stuff no doubt no doubt you know so i would have to think that you know natural mortality would be would be higher in rivers than it would be in lakes you know probably not a ridiculously higher amount but higher i mean natural mortality of fish is usually pretty pretty high decent you know um yeah i was uh to other critters yeah i was when i originally asked that question i was more thinking about how much uh more those fish river fish have to work just because they're mm -hmm. in a constantly moving uh you know environment but uh yeah i mean if you found a 20 year old river fish <laughs> i mean that kind of answers my question so um well i guess uh going to the next thing that you, you talked a little bit of touched on spawn so we're gonna get we're gonna get into a little bit of controversy here because <laughs> uh, um as you probably know as a fisherman uh the the fishing community is divided on the um you know whether it's ethical or not to fish for um you know during the spawn right so i know there's there's some studies that have been done but you know as a as a self-proclaimed fish scientist which is like the coolest title of anybody well, not, i've ever not self-proclaimed <laughs> well that's true he's that's the, true yeah he's, a, yeah, he's got the yeah uh so as a fish scientist would you uh, what what's your take on fishing during the spawn is it is it uh i, I don't know really you have to get into ethics here but just like you know as far as uh the the effects of actually angling pressure during the spawn what, what do you think about it yeah you're right about the controversy and 
I have existed, thankfully, on the outskirts of that for my whole life. Uh, I only spent the two years I spent in South Dakota. South Dakota never actually regulated fishing during the spawn. So I never even have ever I have never lived in a state where you had a closed season for bass. Um, so down here, OK, in the southern half of the country, there is no controversy as far as we're concerned. We don't care. People, <laughs> That's what I like want, to hear. All they want, you know, and and, you know, every once in a while you'll hear you'll hear a little bit of chatter from some anglers who don't like it just because for whatever reason. Um, but as far as like there's not a single fish management guy, biologist, state biologist or anyone person down here that I've ever heard of that even gives it a thought. Um, so, so <laughs> you're I got to be honest, the, uh, the online PhD fly fishermen are really <laughs> giving it a lot of thought. <laughs> They're thinking about it a lot. Yeah. But the, but the biologists aren't, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> they just aren't. It's just not anything that we think is a problem. Um, yeah. you know, well, now, I'll be, we'll be sure to put your, to garble your voice. we're gonna we're gonna black your face out like they do on the documentaries when like the the informant comes forward right uh local fish doctor says you know no all right that's awesome man well the northern part of the country is where the controversy exists for the most part um and i can tell you that i think what you're seeing is mostly the biologists have come down, come over to the southern view of not worrying about it very much compared to what things were like 30 years ago. And the reason I say that is because you're seeing one after another, the states that used to have closed fishing seasons for bass, removing them. And that tells I've you all that you know. <laughs> because if the they really thought that there was a problem, they would not do that. Um, they don't relax regulations just to please anglers if they think <laughs> there's a problem. You know what I mean? Uh, so Michigan is an example of that. Michigan now has a 365-day bass season. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't the Susquehanna open during the spawn now as well? I'm not sure, but I bet. I, I, I know yeah, New York opened their fishing seasons up. I, I've heard it. I heard that. Um I'm not even sure all of them that have. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I know Minnesota, I don't think, still has has not opened theirs up. I'm not sure about Wisconsin. I heard I did know that Michigan did, and I thought Pennsylvania did, and I know New York and I think some of the other New England states have also opened them up. So the controversy is rapidly declining, um, at least at the biologist level. But I can tell you that <laughs> I've been, you know, so so where we have a uh of course, like every other profession, we have a professional um, society that we, we belong to, American Fishery Society, in, in our case. And, uh, and we have annual meetings every year um, and, and, and division meetings every year. And, and so and we go to these meetings and we give talks about our science and what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. Very typical. And so as part of those meetings, we often put on symposia about themes that so you can kind of come into one room and hear a bunch of talks about the same kind of subject 
And, and one, of, one very common one is Black Bass Symposium. And I have been to many of them down in the South, and they're just normal situations. And I've been to two in the Midwest, um, which mid, the Midwest division is your area and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan and all those. And holy cow, they are very entertaining. I mean, they should sell tickets, honestly, because both of the ones I've been to, and they were separated by, oh, probably 10 years, I would guess, ended up devolving into shouting matches between the states that did not have closed seasons and the ones that did about whether or not fishing during the spawn was a problem. And it was unfreaking believable I mean, it wow. was just like, I'm just looking at this going like, okay, then, uh, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, thank God the anglers aren't in this room because there'd probably be fisticuffs. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the thing that was always a problem for me was the states that restricted everybody had no data to support the restrictions other than just common sense. So, and, and the problem was, for instance, Minnesota at the time, Minnesota did not, did have a restriction and South Dakota and North Dakota didn't. And yet magically there was no problems in any of those states. Um, and um, I can't remember, I'm, I, I, I'm remember, I don't remember anymore who had what restrictions, but that, there, that's a, an example of where you have border states that one restricts and one doesn't, and there's no discernible differences. In, in well, maybe, maybe one reason why it's no longer really an issue, or maybe one reason why it's no longer, you know, science is sort of shifting into the, you know, to the position of thinking it doesn't really matter that much is, is, is part of that explanation. Could that be uh, the prevalence of catch and release fishing? I mean, is that, is that part of it you think or no? Um, that's a great question. So those are probably two different questions, right? So if you're worried about outright harvest of bass, you know, then then that's the problem. Then then a catch and release um, um, ethic removes that problem. Right. Um, but most of the problem, most of the reasons why those closed seasons were supposedly put on there was to protect the population you know, protect the spawning fish from being able to spawn and re and reproduce. And that was a problem because I, th there was no population effects that were, were documented. Um, and I mean, this still doesn't go away. There are still people that are going to go to their graves swearing that people catching fish off of beds, you know, hurts the fishery, whether they release them or not, because right. that nest gets destroyed by the, the, the egg predators. Which is 100% true. The question is, how many of those fish do you have to pull off a nest to affect a 10,000-acre lake? And is that even remotely possible? Can you actually, can anglers catch enough fish where you can't get a year class produced? And that has never been documented. Hmm. Not on a large scale, that you could do that. You know, that, that, uh, um, and, and it really irritated the snot out of me, frankly, that some of the states, and again, this has all mostly been solved now, so thank God. But I mean, when I used to hear these controversies 30 years ago, 
I was like, you know, rather than sit here and speculate about what may or may not happen, I mean, some of these states, and, and I'll just mention Minnesota as, as a great example, but I mean, all the northern states that have a ton of natural lakes have this had had this opportunity. I'm like, you sample these lakes every year, take 10 of them or 12 of them and pull the restriction off and let people fish and keep sampling them. Show me. Show me it hurts. See if you can detect the decline in the population. Because if it does, then you've got great justification. If it doesn't, then you're restricting the ability of these people to fish for no good reason. Mm. You know, but it never happened. And, and uh, um, you know, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it didn't happen um, just because it would have been interesting to see. Because that's the real question is, does it have a population level effect? Because nests fail all the time. Um, you know, what percentage of the fish have to reproduce for you to still have a population of fish to fish for? And I suspect that number is much lower than we think. Um, and uh, so I'm not terribly worried about it myself. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember uh, Quetico is a great example. Um, and I don't know if this is still true because I don't keep up with the regulations on our side of the border up there anymore. But but I know when I first started going up there in the 90s, you know, on the U.S. side, you were not allowed to catch or fish for, quote unquote, fish for smallmouth bass in June when we would go up there. Uh, or uh, But when you go across into Canada, you can. And I'm like, well, and somehow the fishing's better up here. Yeah, so. I was going to say the fishing didn't <laughs> suffer at all. You know, and so, you know, you see that kind of stuff all the time. And I do remember the, the first one that I was at, which was actually in Toronto in 92. Um, they were talking about how they were, um, how they were enforcing that rule. Because what you have up there very often, or at least used to, um, I should say, because, again, I, I don't keep up with this stuff since I'm so far away now. Um, but you used to have, like, opening day of fishing season, and then you would later, like, months later sometimes, have opening day of bass season. So there are people out there fishing for, like, pike and walleye. Sure. And they're not supposed to be fishing for bass, but if you know, and I know, when we go up there and fish those lakes, what are you all catching at the same time? You're catching yeah. all of them. How and so it's like, well, how are they that? not fishing for bass then if they're fishing for pike? You know, and then the guy actually, whoever it was, he was some biologist from Canada. I don't remember who he was, but I mean, he basically said something to the effect of if the people are casting towards shore, then we consider them bass fishing and if they're not. They're yeah. And I'm like, so this is what you, I mean. So in other words, <laughs> we never actually had a closure for bass anyway, because there are tons of people out there catching bass either purposefully or just by bycatch anyway. And yeah. so, you know, that's when sometimes, you, you know, you, we get on our scientific high horse about some things and we're, we, it, reality does not actually match our perception. And so the reality, and the per, so what I took away from that was, and, and in a lot of cases, and again, that was Canada, who knows what they did down here back then, but in Canada, they thought they had a closed bass season, but they really didn't. 
because people sure. were out there catching bass anyway. And if it was a problem, like, again, most of the arguments for closed seasons were always couched in reproduction, not harvest. It was all, we're protecting the spawn, we're protecting the reproduction. Well, if that's the case, then it wouldn't matter whether these people are inadvertently catching them while they're fishing for something else, which happened a lot, or if they're targeting them, there still would be impacting the population. Mm. And yeah, so, you know, to my ears. <laughs> it's, it's, there's not, that's why you're seeing so many of these states moving away from that, because they've realized that it was tradition and that's what it was. Why did they, why did they, why did they have those closed seasons? Because <clears throat> they've had them for 50 or 60 years or 100 I mean, years in some I mean, Steve, can we, you know, the, uh, you know, we get arguments of people, you know, kind of lowbrowing us on the fishing during the spawn. Can we just say, you know, do you just not believe in science? Is that, can, that, <laughs> can, that, can that be our response to them? <laughs> yeah, well, essentially. I, I, I think, mean, uh, they have to know, realize that if states were worried, if they thought that was a threat to the population, they would regulate it. They would. That's sure. exactly what they would do. If they thought that it was a problem, they would regulate it. Because if their fisheries collapse, people will stop fishing. They won't be buying fishing licenses and their revenue will collapse. It is Anglers sometimes never seem to make that connection that the states don't want the fisheries to collapse. <laughs> they, right. they don't, you know, they, they absolutely don't. If they think there's a threat, they will address it. And the reason why they're getting rid of these is because they don't think that they're a problem anymore. Um, I remember the last time I heard this addressed was our last big black bass symposium, which was with all the different species of bass. It was in 2013, um, which has a book, it, which we'll talk about near the end here. Um, but uh, a, a, a colleague of mine who did his PhD at North Carolina State University has been up in Cornell forever. Um, and I guess, God, well, Randy's been up there for at least now 25 years, I think. And so he was there and they, they've been sampling uh, a couple lakes in the Cornell area. Cornell is right on Lake Oneida, probably one of the most sampled lakes in the universe uh, because <laughs> of that. Um, and uh, they had data from, from Lake Oneida and about two or three other area lakes that had stretched back over decades. And New York, of course, like I said, is one of the ones that removed the, the bass season. And so they kept sampling it. And he had this great talk where he just looked threw the data up there and and you know actually the catch rates of smallmouth bass increased after they took the <laughs> after they took the season away then 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 uh and it actually significantly increased in like two of the three lakes over time and so his conclusion was is that you know when you take the and he was of course tongue-in-cheek about this but i mean his conclusion was you know so Closed seasons were actually limiting the bass production in the lakes, and when you take them off, it increases it. You know, of course, what was going on was some environmental thing just made it better for bass sure. for a while. But still, there was no decline in bass populations when the, when New York removed those those limits. Um, yeah, that's and, uh, that's really so, interesting. You know, that, that there's just not a lot of of hard science 
too much of it was based on on uh, the fate of individual nests, which is very damning. I mean, very damning. I mean, you take a bass off a nest and all the sunfish that are hanging around there run in and eat all the eggs. <laughs> we know that. I mean, you know, that is 100% accurate. So if you pull a fish off a nest, you know, unless you take it off the hook and get it back in the water as fast as possible, that nest is probably toast. But a lot of times they'll re-nest. So, um, you know, not all bass spawn once. They're, they're, it's not uncommon for them to spawn more than once during a season. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. That's something you got to talk about more because I did not know that. Did you know that, Josh? I, I didn't know it was possible. I didn't know it was frequent. Yeah, They don't do it unless... I, I mean, it's not like, so most boss bass spawning seasons, they last somewhere between four and eight weeks. Um, the farther north you go, the shorter it is. That's, that's definitely true. Um, down here, we have very protracted uh, spawning seasons. I've, I've seen, I, I've aged. One of the things we can do is, is when we catch little tiny bass in the summer, we can pull their little otoliths out. And in that case, we can count daily rings and we can back calculate to when they're hatched. And I, I've, I've seen in like the Flint River, Georgia, uh, largemouth bass were hatched over a 12 week, week period, starting in March all the way through May. So they have very extended spawning seasons. And like I said, the farther north you go, the shorter they get. But even as shortest that they are is probably about four weeks. And so if a bass successfully spawns and he's got to guard the eggs and he's got to guard the fry and all that, he's probably done. But if their nest gets disrupted, some of them will actually re-nest. Uh, and females spawn more than once commonly. Uh, that's been documented quite a bit. I mean, they're different, right? They're not guarding the nest. They're, they come in and lay some eggs and then they move back out and then they come back in and lay some eggs. So they're actually nest hopping from nest to nest. They don't lay all their eggs at once very typically. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of how it works. A lot of times it's, uh, there's some evidence out there that says the largest bass spawn earliest um, and the smaller bass spawn later, but whatever it is, it is definitely true that if you go and do like that analysis I've mentioned where you, you get a grab, 100 or 150 age, you know, little baby bass in July, let's just say, pull their otoliths out and back calculate them, you will see that they've hatched over a three to five week period almost every year. So it's not like they all show up at once and spawn and they all go away. That's not how it works. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's interesting. So that is going to conclude part one of our Dr. Salmon's interview. I uh, hope you guys were able to get uh, a lot of good information from that first part. Some really, really interesting stuff, especially on the spawn. Um, my personal favorite part of that. Um, and then uh, the second part is really cool, equally as cool. It's uh, He dives a little bit more into uh, kind of the threats to native smallmouth and some things as uh, anglers we should be paying attention to um some some really interesting things going on right now in real time and uh he talks about that so anyways hope you guys enjoyed this and uh i'll post the second part uh probably here in yeah three or four days uh and just to finish this one up as always free the fighter